0: In worship of our holy God, turn with me to John chapter five. Turn with me to John chapter five, and this morning I'd like for us to look at verses uh, 17, or sorry, 16 through 29. Verses 16 through 29. And it's been a little bit since we've uh, been in the book of John, so maybe it's helpful for you to understand where we've been, and that way you have a better glimpse of where we're going. You would remember the last time we discussed the Gospel of John, Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda, a man who for 38 years uh, was unable to do anything to help himself or to fix his problems, is healed by Jesus. But there is a grave issue here. And it's the issue that Jesus does this on the Sabbath. And we need to understand that as a focal point that leads us into really what is known by many as one of the greatest discourses in the Gospel of John. Some commentators have noted that this is the highest point in John's Gospel because of what Jesus says about himself. Knowing these things, turn with me back to John 5. and Let's begin reading in verse 16. And this, Jesus healing on the Sabbath was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead... And gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the kind of God who makes himself known. Thank you that you have chosen to make it clear who you are, and even now by the words that are in this passage for us. Thank you that Jesus is not hidden or mysterious, but has revealed himself exactly as he is, son of God, son of man, God, man, mediator between heaven and earth, the only one righteous enough and the only perfect substitute for sinners. We are so grateful for Christ, may we know him more even now, and may that knowledge lead to love, and that love lead to a life that's devoted to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. While there are many things that can be said about Jesus, but we've come to the climax of what is true about Christ. Many things that can be said about Jesus and these things are uh, common to all of us and things maybe that you've heard in passing, whether it's in conversations with friends or family or with teachers or with uh, people at school. There's things that everyone holds in high regard about Jesus and yet there's a particular truth that rises above them all. Unfortunately, it's also a truth that is less and less common even amongst people who call themselves Christians. It's of note that Jesus was a very good person. It's easy to see that, even in the first few chapters of John. The kind of person that will show up at a wedding, and when no one's willing to go to Ralph's, Jesus will just make grape juice out of nowhere. That's the kind of person Jesus is. He's a kind person, a compassionate person, a good person. It's evident that Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus meets with a very religious man, a man by the name of Nicodemus, A man who is the teacher of Israel and yet his understanding of God pales in comparison to Jesus's because Jesus is the ultimate teacher and many know him in that. Many understand him to be this kind of rabbi, this guru, this uh, this one who has all kinds of wisdom and knowledge, but yet Jesus is still even much more than that. Many regard Jesus to be very moralistic. Jesus is the kind of person who always does the right thing. And you would remember that when Jesus steps into the temple and begins flipping tables, which we got a great rendition of this at home the other day. Our kids play this game where they go up to the fireplace and then they um, either make animal sounds and we have to guess it or they recite Bible verses and we correct it or they tell us, they, they reenact a story. So Ezra went up the other day and Ezra was said, I, "I want to reenact a Bible story, and you guys can guess it." And so he went up to the fireplace, and he stood there and looked at us, and he went like this. <laughs> so I was like, "Okay, this is this is obviously David. He doesn't know how to do a slingshot, so he's figuring something else." So he's like, "I was like, that's David, right?" He's like, no. he's like, "No, let me do it again." I was like, okay, something's wrong. I don't know this Bible story. He's reading the Apocrypha. Um, something's happening to him. And I was like, Ezra, you've got to tell us, buddy. We don't know what you're doing. And he's like, I'm Jesus, and I'm flipping tables. <laughs> and I was like, I, I didn't like that sentence, but okay. <laughs> now you would remember that in that story of Jesus flipping tables, the reason is because Jesus cares about righteousness, and he cares about what God cares about. And so many could look at Jesus in a moment like that, that we can kind of think of as kind of funny and kind of crazy, but the reason that people marveled at it in that day and age was because they thought, whoa, this guy cares deeply about doing the right thing. And that's true about Jesus. And even still, there's so much more to who Jesus is. And now we come to a point where Jesus has to make it very clear to us what's the most important thing about him. When we try to think about who Christ is and how we're going to identify him, what what characteristics are we going to ascribe to him, and how do we want to lump together in the simplest way, who is this Jesus? This whole situation at the Pool of Bethesda has given him the opportunity to make that abundantly clear to us. And what's most important of anything that regards Jesus is that he is God. More than a teacher, more than someone who's moral, more than someone who just has wisdom, more than simply being compassionate and kind, Jesus is God. And by means of this text, what Jesus denotes is he is one with the Father, Jesus does something that would have been so mind-boggling to the people listening to him. No one can claim that kind of relationship with God. In fact, even to call God your father was not something that anyone did very often. Because people recognize God is God and we are not. So no one can truly say just in a very flippant way, that's my father. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. And the Sabbath sets him up for this. This means by which the religious leaders are getting upset with him, so upset to the point that now they're seeking to kill him. It's not simply that he's operating and moving and working on the Sabbath. It's that he's calling God his father. And you would notice, as it says in verse 18, he's making himself equal with God. And friends, what is a problem to the religious leaders is the only hope that any of us has for salvation in Christ. That Jesus is one with the Father. That Jesus is equal with God. It is the purest and most foundational truth about Christ. If you get this wrong, you get it all wrong. If you don't believe this truth, you don't believe any of it. If you don't get this right, you've got none of it right. Jesus is God. And he wants to show us this in this little discourse here. I have it for you in three particular ways. Number one, Jesus is always doing the Father's work. Evidence is that Jesus is God. Number one, Jesus is always doing the Father's work. Number two, Jesus grants the Father's life. Jesus grants the Father's life. And number three, Jesus executes the Father's judgment. Jesus executes the Father's judgment. This is a reality, this is a truth that is important, and not only important, but the most important for you. In our day and age, studies show that less than 50% of young people believe, that say they're Christians, believe that Jesus is actually God. And more and more people are removing this truth from their life. And I'll tell you why. Because when Jesus isn't regarded as God, you get to regard yourself that way. When Jesus isn't regarded as Lord, you get to count yourself as Lord. And so many people love making Jesus the bumper sticker of their life while they do whatever they want. Friends, the reality that Jesus is God is most important. Because if you don't live like Jesus is God, you may have a false sense of faith. Those who truly know God and truly love God and truly live for God know that Jesus is God. And he wants to demonstrate that to us in three key ways this morning, in a minute, afternoon. Number one, Jesus does the Father's work. Jesus is always doing the Father's work. Now you'll remember that the setup for this is Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. And he's told, hey, what are you doing? This is wrong. You can't be doing this. And Jesus responds here in verse 17. Jesus answered them, my Father is working until now and I am working. Notice Jesus doesn't Make some kind of excuses or try to put together an explanation as to why he's allowed to do this on the Sabbath. Jesus could do that, but he doesn't. Though the religious leaders of Israel have put together all kinds of extra laws and regulations to the Sabbath that are erroneous, and Jesus could debunk all of them, Jesus doesn't play their game and get into the semantics about the Sabbath. In order to make his point, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus goes straight for the heart of the matter. The reason the Sabbath doesn't apply to me is because I made the Sabbath. The reason the Sabbath doesn't apply to me is I was around when the Sabbath was initiated. You you want to talk about a person who knows the Sabbath? Talk to the guy who made it. Talk to the guy who for six days put the world together and on the seventh said, I will rest. Now, we have to think about, is Jesus saying we shouldn't rest? Is he saying we shouldn't do the Sabbath? I don't think that's the point. In fact, look at us here right now, learning from God's word, initiated on this Lord's day, which is a way that we call it a Sabbath. So we obviously still care about this. But Jesus is, doesn't need a Sabbath because he's tired like we do. Doesn't need a Sabbath because he's restless like we are. Uh, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And his Father is still doing good works even on the Sabbath, and so will Jesus. Uh, If you want evidence of that, just walk outside. It's a beautiful 80 degree day. That didn't get there by chance. God has orchestrated that for your good and our blessing because God is working. The grass in the fields right now, still growing. Trees, still blooming. Birds, still singing. Wind, still blowing. And all of this not by chance, but because God is working. And so if God works at all times, what else would Jesus do? Jesus says, if my Father's working, I'm working. And this absolutely gets to the heart of the matter. And that's why verse 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the great issue with Christ. If you want to boil it down to your relationship with Jesus and what the problems might be with it. It's not that you might think he's moral or good or religious or not. It's that he's either God or he isn't. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis says he either has to be a lunatic or he has to be Lord. With all the ways that Jesus talks about himself. And the way that Jesus even here claims that God is his father personally. And that he works on the Sabbath because he's on the same footing as God that either has to come out of the mouth of a crazy person or someone who's telling the truth. And the answer for us, or the answer for those who have believed by God's grace, is that we know Jesus is telling the truth. And he finds no better way to answer these folks than by doing just that. He tells them the truth. He's always doing the Father's work. And so look at what he says in 19. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Of course He's equal with the Father. Because everything the Father does, the Son does. Everything the Father's doing, the Son is doing. That's what Jesus says here. And he wants you to pay special attention to this. I want you to know in John, in the gospel of John, when you see these words, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, those are words meant for you to perk up, listen up, pay attention. There's something important Jesus is communicating here. And truly, truly, he says to us, he does nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, that the son does. Notice, he's not saying, if I see the father doing something, I'm going to try to do the same thing. If I see the father working in some kind of way, I want to mimic that. That's not the kind of thing that we're talking about. I mean, I have that at home. I've already talked about my kids, but that's what happens all day at my house. And maybe you can recognize this. In this day and age where you get to like put a resume together and go to college and then go get whatever job you want, it's not as common to us to understand this, but imagine growing up two, 300 years ago when your dad was a farmer. Guess what you were going to be? Not an accountant, a farmer. That's right. If your dad was a welder, you would grow up in a welding family. You would take on the same work, you would take on the same trade, you would learn from your dad, and you would try to replicate the things that he's doing. And I'm giving that to you by way of example to tell you that the relationship between the Father and the Son of Heaven is actually different from that. Not because they're not doing the same work, they are, but they're doing it in the same exact way. Jesus is not learning to do what the Father does. Jesus is doing what the Father does. So, do you want proof that Jesus is truly God? See that Jesus is doing the same work that the Father is doing. He is doing the same work that God is doing. How can we know that Jesus is God? Because He commits to doing the same exact work. That his father is doing. That should come as no surprise to you. You remember in the book of Colossians we read about him being the image of the invisible God. Being the one who upholds all things. Sustains all things. That nothing came into being if it weren't for him. John 1 tells us that. And so it's evident that the life of Jesus, not only in this earthly sense, not only in John chapter 5, but from eternity past until eternity future, Jesus is doing the Father's work. And that is a signal crying out to you that He is God. Of the same essence as His Father, and distinct in person. A beautiful nod here to the reality of the Trinity. And to call out to you as to whether or not you believe in him as God. Not only is he doing the Father's work, but secondly, we see this in verses 20 to 24. Jesus is granting the Father's life. Jesus is doing the Father's work. Jesus is also granting the Father's life. Look here at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And so we see that there's a connection here. The Father loves his son, and so his son not only does all the things the Father is doing, but his Son knows everything his Father's going to do. Not only are they one in work, but they're one in will. Not only are they going to do the same things, but they know and share the same wisdom on everything. There is a perfect unity between this father and son, and it's predicated on this love. And here, John actually uses a different word for love than he often will in the rest of this gospel. Here he uses phileo, which is different from what you'll see elsewhere, which is agape. Agape is that love that's unconditional and it has no bounds and it is purposeful and it's intended for someone and it will never pass away. It's a a strong kind of love. And phileo is as well. Phileo is a love that's familial. It's my hood, Philadelphia, Philadelphia the city of brotherly love. And I know what you're wondering, why is it always on the news for people shanking each other? I don't know, because we're supposed to love each other. That's what this word is intended for. It's an inseparable kind of love. It's a bonded kind of love that the Father and the Son both share. And that kind of love opens up the Son not only to do everything the Father's doing, but to know everything the Father purposes to do. And in light of this, it leads us into this great reality of what he is going to do that's most important for us. There are greater works that Jesus is to do. If you think him helping a crippled man at a pool for 38 years who could do nothing for himself, if you think that's cool, wait till you see what else he has in store. That's what Jesus says here. Now I'll show him to you so that you may marvel. That you may wonder. And look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. You want to know how great the works are from the hand of the Father and the Son? How about the fact that the Son has power over life and death himself? It's interesting actually because the word used here to talk about raising up from the dead is actually the same word that Jesus uses when he talks to this man at the pool and he says, get up from your place and walk, rise up and walk. It is as if though the man at this pool is a portrait to us of something far greater that Jesus is intended to do. God has power to raise up the dead and to give them life, but he's also given that power to his son. Or as to say, his son possesses that same kind of power, to give life to whomever he wills. What did a man sitting poolside for 38 years do to earn God's favor and to be able to walk that day? Absolutely nothing. All he did was long for the day where someone would help him. And in walks Jesus, granting life to whoever he wills. This is the purpose that Christ came for. He came to give life. He came to give us the kind of life that only he possesses. A kind of life that's in tune with what the Father's doing. A kind of life that desires and loves and knows God and and purposes to be in tune with everything that God desires that kind of life, Jesus came to give it freely. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, listen, listen, pay attention, pay attention. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is what Jesus came to give. Jesus came to freely give of his life. And it's a mystery to us, but look at this. Jesus here says, there's greater works than these that he will do so that you would marvel, and many do marvel, but notice what Jesus' purposes and intends is that whoever hears his word wouldn't just marvel and wouldn't just think, wow, this guy's kind of cool. Wow, this guy's awesome. Wow, this guy loves righteousness. Wow, this guy loves God. But that they would truly believe him. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. If you want the kind of life that Jesus offers, then you must receive his word as being true. If you want eternal life, the only offer of it comes from Jesus. All you have to do is believe upon him. Trust in him. Know that Jesus is truly the way, the truth, and the life. John 3, 16 and 17, we read these verses before, Jesus came because he loved the world to save the world, that it wouldn't perish, but it would have an everlasting life. God didn't send his world son to condemn the world, but so that in him the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Friends, this is exactly what we're seeing here. The testimonies line up. What Jesus says to Nicodemus is exactly what he says here. Here. That those who try to live in opposition to who He is, they have this judgment of death upon them unless they take His word seriously. To believe is to hear Him. And not only that, but then to live in light of what you've heard. If I were to tell you that standing in that, in that hallway right now, we had lunch for you, In-N-Out, Chick-fil-A, whatever you desired, And I'm not lying. No, I'm kidding. I I actually am kidding. If I were to tell you that, here's the thing. If you heard me and you didn't give a rip about what I said, you'd stay here. But if you did care, I would imagine you'd rush out there and get whatever you wanted. Because hearing always leads to action. Hearing always leads to decisions. Hearing always leads to a response So what Jesus is saying here is not simply, if you hear my words and like them and sit there for a long time with them, I know you believe. No, it's the kind of belief we see in James chapter 2. That if you say you have faith, then you also have works. Not because those things will save you, but because those things will show you've truly heard the true gospel from the true Son of the true and living God. So you love the truth. And what are you doing with it? You've heard the truth. You say you believe the truth. Then we should see the kind of life the Father grants through His Son. You want another evidence that Jesus is God? Those who've heard His gospel and believed His gospel now live in the power of that gospel. Those who hear the words of Jesus aren't hearers only, but doers of the word. And what we see in them is this eternal life that can only come from Jesus. Third and finally, evidence here that Jesus is God. Jesus is executing the Father's judgment. And we saw this a little bit here in verse 22 already. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. It's awesome. It's a ministry of delegation. The Son will take care of judgment. But remember, as we've already said, it's not only that Jesus is doing the same works as the Father. Jesus and the Father are on the same page about what's to be done. And so when Jesus is to execute judgment, Him and the Father agree on what's to be done. And it leads us here to verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now it's very interesting here because this is one of the few passages where we get to see both sides of the coin as to who Jesus is. He truly is the son of God who will make the dead live again. Now we turn into this passage about resurrection. And I don't know if you've understood this or not, but the thing that Jesus is going to make clear for us here is not simply that those who believe in him will be resurrected. I know that's why many of us have put our faith in Christ and we're excited and longing for the day when we get to spend eternity with Jesus because though we die, we will live. Jesus is saying more than that. Jesus is saying, all who die will live. All who perish will rise again. He has life to raise from the dead. Everyone he wills, and everyone will rise again. And those who hear his voice will live. That's the difference. The Son of God has come with power so that those who hear his gospel might live by his gospel. What gives him this authority? The Father does. The Father has life in himself. And the Son has life in himself. And verse 27 draws back to a very beautiful passage in Daniel chapter 7. As he's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Here's the flip side of that. Jesus, the God-man, has all authority. And the Son of Man is the one that's talked about in Daniel seven fourteen. He approaches the Ancient of Days. In a vision that Daniel has. And to him is granted a kingdom. And he has all dominion over that kingdom. All power over that kingdom. He reigns in that kingdom. No one rivals him for that kingdom. And Jesus is equating himself with that very person. Now, many would have absolutely been floored by this information. So so Jesus is the Son of God and like God has power over death And he's also the son of man who's come to bring in this kingdom. This is wild stuff. And how can he say these things about himself? Jesus, knowing our hearts better than we know ourselves, verse 28, do not marvel at this. He already knows that this is going to be a lot to take in. But notice what he leads to. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the purpose to which Jesus is driving us to. Jesus wants every person in this room to take it very seriously. And not only that you have a reason to respond in faith to Him today. But that each and every single one of us will stand before God for all eternity one day. And in that day, we will have to give an account for our lives and that will place us in one of two positions. Though all of us will die, all of us will live again, some of us to a resurrection of life and some of us to a resurrection of judgment. And the question is, which is yours? Which is yours? Will you be raised again to life? Or will you be raised again to be fully and finally judged by God for your sin? A lot of people take issue with this passage because... Here, Jesus says he'll raise people from the tombs when they hear his voice, and they'll come out, and those who've done good to the resurrection of life, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so people go, wait, so Jesus is saying, if I do good things, I'll be resurrected to life. And he's saying, if I do bad things, then I will be resurrected to this judgment. And people like to read it that way without reading the rest of their Bible. Because the rest of your Bible would make it clear. Those who have done good things, what good thing could you do apart from the one who is good? Those who do good things and are resurrected to this resurrection of life, how would that be possible unless you've heard the gospel, believed the gospel, And Ephesians 2.10, become a workmanship of God who's prepared beforehand, before the eternity of the world, prepared good works for you that you would walk in them. Absolutely, people who do good things will be resurrected to life because they've been fashioned for good things by a good Savior. It's not that their deeds have saved them. It's that their life has been transformed by the power of Christ. They've been resurrected to life, a life they couldn't give themselves, a life that was given to them by a Savior. Those who do evil things, resurrected for judgment, to give an account for not only everything you've done, because I think that's the way we think about judgment. We think that we'll get to heaven and we'll just have to explain to Jesus uh, why we did bad things. Friends, here's the thing you need to take away today. When you stand before God, it's not simply that you'll have to give an account for all the things you've done. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to have to give an account as to why you heard about him and you didn't do anything with it. The issue is not simply that you lie, that you steal, that you hate each other, that, that you're unkind to one another, that you cheat on a test, or, or that you dishonor your parents. Those things, they're all stacked up against you. But the biggest thing is Jesus says, I can cleanse you, I can forgive you, I can save you, I promise to love you, I promise to bring you into my kingdom, and one day, if you deny all that, you'll have to explain to God why you didn't accept that offer. This is the news of the gospel. It's that Jesus is a Savior. It's that all of us will one day have to rise again. Philippians actually makes that very clear to us, right? You can turn there very quickly with me. Turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Verse 9 says, Therefore, because Jesus has come in the form of a servant, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, though it belonged to him. Though he came in human form and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of a death, even on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice, it doesn't say every believing knee will bow and every believing tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It is indiscriminate as to what you think of Jesus. There is a coming day where every creature, every human being will stand before God and say, you are truly Lord, you are truly God, and Christ is the only way that would have saved. The question is, will you sing that out with a resurrected body aimed towards life eternal with God? Or will you bear that in mind as a resurrected body fit for eternal punishment and wrath for all your days. That is what Jesus is aiming at. And if you want to know why that's true, it's because Jesus is God. What he says is true. I know some people think that Jesus is harsh for speaking this way. Some people think God's unkind for having to do things this way. Friends, nothing could be more kind than God being honest with you so that you could be right with him. Will you be raised up again to eternal life in Christ or raised up and be judged for refusing his son? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. I pray that we would take you seriously just as you've taken it so seriously, our sin so seriously, that you would die on a cross for us. And you do that so that we might have life, and that eternally, abundantly. You are a gracious Savior, though we do not deserve your love. You've given it to us, and now you call your enemies your friends. Help us, God, to live for you and to love you and to hold in highest regard that Jesus, above all things, is truly the Lord of all. If there's anyone here who has not believed in you, I pray that you would move their hearts to find grace in you, to see that sins are atoned for, they're paid for, and this by the precious blood of Christ, so that all who believe in you might have life eternal. It's in your name we pray. Amen.